Welcome to the Book Stories podcast. My name is Richard Davis. We speak to authors, publishers, booksellers, collectors, librarians, and other book lovers about how books have shaped their lives. Today's guest is author and copywriter Louise Wilder, and we're talking about blurbs, those little snippets of promotional text that appear on the covers of books. Louise has been a copywriter at Penguin Books for more than 25 years and estimates she's written around 5,000 book blurbs. She's the author of a book called Blurb Your Enthusiasm, an A to Z of Literary Persuasion, which describes her experiences as a copywriter at Penguin. Louise describes with much humor uh, about literary history, writing rules, wordplay, genres, and the power of words. Welcome, Louise. Hello, thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Thank you for joining us. Um, So you've got a fascinating job. When you meet someone who's not involved in publishing, how do you describe your job? Um, The honest answer is probably that I just go, oh, you know, those things on the back of the books, but I write those and that's it. And then I I thought more about, you know, if I if I would describe my job in an ideal world, you know, if if I had the time to think about it. And um, and I think that I would say I was part of this kind of secret army of writers in the publishing industry who um, who write these sort of what you could almost call a, a miniature story on on the back of a book um, with as few words as possible for the for the maximum emotional impact. And between us, we've hopefully sold millions of books. Um, I like Iris Murdoch's description of a blurb as a as a mini art form. Um, and the idea is that I think we try and capture the essence of a book and sort of distill its magic and and hopefully um, try and connect with another reader who's browsing in a bookshop and hook them in. That's the aim anyway. So do you think you're there to catch the eye of the reader, catch the interest of a reader? Because obviously the final objective is to help sell that copy of the book. Yes, I, I think it is. Um, but I also think it's to, as well as hooking the minutes, to try and make a connection somehow. There's a description of a blurb um, by an Italian writer, Roberto Calasso, that I really like, which calls it a letter to a stranger. So I also think of it as trying to make this personal connection with someone who's just standing there in the bookshop, you know, probably not paying that much attention to the words they see, because we all know we have many demands on our time. They might be standing up, they might be looking at loads and loads of books, they might just really be glancing at our words. Um, But I would would just hope that something that I had put there would would speak to them. And yes, (laughs) end up in a sale. Yeah. Can I ask a technical question? It, it seems to me there's two sorts of blurbs. There's like a descriptive, concise summary, eye-catching piece of text that that is provided by someone at the publisher. And then there's little endorsements that come from somebody else, like a fellow author or, of note. You're involved with both, correct? Yes. There is a bit of confusion sometimes about the meaning of the word blurb, because in the UK, it generally means that paragraph of, of descriptive copy. In the US, more commonly, it's an author endorsement, a quote from another author about a book. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's all promotional copy that's that's trying to, to sell the book. And so, yes, I am involved with both of those. So 
writing the copy, crafting the copy, but also picking out the review quotes, picking out the best bits, trying to avoid picking out words like readable. <laughs> because right it's a book and so you know therefore it should be readable um and to just put them together in a way that's that seems enticing i suppose um and at one point in the book i do confess that on occasion um i have been asked to help an author come up with an endorsement for another author <laughs> whose book they were a fan of but they haven't quite had time um to to write their own endorsement so yes occasionally those are written for them by other people. Right. Okay, let's start at the beginning then. Um, how did you become a copywriter after this long, long career? Uh, <laughs> I, I believe you started with Puffin, the children's books publisher. Yes, that's right. That was in uh, 1996. So um, I started in their publicity department as a press officer. Um, so I got to work on all sorts of lovely books by Roald Dahl and Eric Hall and all those wonderful authors from my childhood, um, which was brilliant. But at the same time, I think I realised I was not a very good publicist. <laughs> I wasn't very good at schmoozing journalists and things like that. But the one thing I absolutely loved was writing the press releases and trying to condense the books into something that would grab somebody's attention and thinking, well, what's the one thing I should pick out? What's the one thing I should say that's really going to, you know, make them sit up and take notice? Um, so after doing that, I was lucky enough to get a job in Penguin's Blurbs department, which used to exist but doesn't anymore. Um, we, it was also known as the cover editorial department. The idea being that the covers of books, the words on the books, we received as much love and care and attention as the words inside. And so there was a, a little group of us who would sit in this room lined with books um, you know, it was basically an introvert's paradise. And we would sit and read books and then write about them and learn learn the art of concision, learn how to use fewer words better. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. And eventually times changed. We were folded into various marketing departments. So I've, I've moved around a little bit. Um, so now we, we sit in, in those departments, I think. Um, you know, we're part of the whole you know, a, a little arrow in the marketing quiver, I suppose you would say. Sounds a little like a, a, a newspaper news desk. W was it like a senior person, like a sub-editor who would check everybody's work? There was, yes. Yes. Um, the managing editor would check all of our work. There would even be someone who wrote um, the author biographies at the front of the books that you see. So those those would be written, updated constantly, would be writing to authors with all of those. So um, it was very much, you know, it, it felt like we were just really learning how to craft words well. And it was just a brilliant experience. So in, in, in your book, you cover many genres of literature, um, romance, uh, literary fiction, self-help. Which genre is the most enjoyable to write for? It's such a good question. Um, I think they're all fun in different ways. And um, I, I wrote a lot about genre because I think it's fascinating how for so many types of books, the 
the blurbs on them are just really kind of genre cues you know it's almost like a semaphore there are certain things that readers of these you know mature markets expect to see so historical thriller they expect to see berlin 1944 um you know a self-help book you expect to have a problem laid out and then a solution and then a promise to the reader and then with romance you know you want a sense of jeopardy um so they're they're just all so fun to work on but i I think thinking about this, I would probably say that crime is my favourite genre to to write blurbs for because I don't get to do it very often, which is a shame. Um, but when I do, I just think it's it's a really good exercise in paring something down to its essence. It's one author I spoke to called um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Buchan, um, who's a, a novelist. She talked about the backbone of a book, so like. What is the absolute essence of this story? What's the core? It's not the same as reciting the plot. It's very different from that. I think it's it's picking out what the points of tension are in the book. So what's this character fighting against? What do they want? Um, where is the story going? What's the setup? But obviously with crime, you just cannot give too much away. So you have yeah. to tantalise, you know. I think as well with books, books like this, it's sort of, I call them comforting thrills. Like you want something, and I love crime myself, you know, you want something the same but slightly different every time. And so I think your copy has to work with that and pull, you know, give readers things that they expect. So, you know, very short sentences, creating atmosphere with the sentences you use and the way you construct your copy, not by saying, oh, this book is thrilling, this book is exciting, but by creating that atmosphere in the, in the way you construct your sentences. Um, show, you know, show, don't tell. <laughs> yeah. thing. Would you use like the flaws of the main detective, the main character as a, as a tool yes, or mechanism? I think, it's, I think with recurring detectives that the flaws of, you know, that, I mean, we would be really shocked if a detective didn't have some kind of personal hang-up. It would be a bit dull, right? Because there's going to be a crime and he or she's probably going to solve it. (laughs) Um, So I think for certain crime novels, character and atmosphere are almost more important than plot. You know, I think this is the whole thing with blurbs. I feel like my book sometimes should have just been called, it's not a synopsis. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Like, you know, you're not just telling people what happens. You are creating an atmosphere and, and a setup and trying to do it as, you know, in as few words as possible. So when you're, uh, when you're writing blurbs, is there, are there rules that you have to adhere to? There are my rules that I've made up. There aren't really <laughs> rules that were given. Um, but, and I, I write a lot about them in my book. I've got a whole section, you know, on various rules for what I think makes for good copy. So I think I already said I, I never use the word readable. I try and avoid phrases like in this book because it's clearly a book and there are clearly things in it. Um, I also try and avoid to starting copy with the word when which is something I've talked to other copywriters about a lot because it generally means that you're going to get a very long sentence afterwards with lots of clauses in it so you know I think just think of a different way to start your copy and the obvious one don't give away the ending Um, but I think there are lots of things that are more positive as well things I do try and do like i always try and find something to like or love in a book you know even if it's not my kind of thing I have to put myself in the shoes of the reader 
and think about what they would want. And I think that's why copywriting is different from writing. There's um, there's a quote from Stephen King when he talks about how you you write with the door closed and you rewrite with the door open. And so I feel like copywriting is writing with the door open all the time. You're thinking of your audience and what they would want. You're you're kind of on their side. You know, you're trying to make life easy for them, not necessarily by dumbing down, but I think with the kind of clarity that, right. that is is really necessary for that kind of writing. So, and also ultimately, as one very wise copywriter said to me, you always have to ask yourself, why should anybody care? <laughs> and if you can't answer that question, then you're stuck. Yeah, that is a good question for many walks of life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so you, you address all sorts of um, books in in your book. And one interesting example is um, Lolita, super famous book, quite troublesome in its nature. Uh, if you had to write a blurb for that novel today, what would you say? How would you go about it? It's... That's so interesting. I mean, the obvious thing is that I would go back to the book um, and I think just looking at it, just reading the the, the opening, I, you know, you haven't read it fully for years. Um, you're just reminded of just what a gruesomely compelling narrator Humbert, Humbert is, you know, the narrator of this story. And, um, and as you say, it's so problematic in so many ways. And because on one level, it is a funny book. You know, I mean, he's called Humbert Humbert. It's a ridiculous name. Um, but it's also about the destruction of a child's life. And there's no way of getting around that. And the reason I chose to write about Lolita in the book is that I just think it's fascinating because of the way this book has, interpretations of this book have changed over the years. Um, Nabokov himself described his his anti-hero I suppose you could say as a vain wretch you know he is a monster there's no getting around it but so many blurbs from the past talk about a love story they use language like doomed passion they use his phrase nymphet as if it's an objective truth you know rather than his yeah. twisted view of the world and I find that really fascinating so I suppose sorry actually getting to your question um, it's interesting because this came up a few years ago, actually. We um, were looking at an old edition of the book in our office and said, oh, my God, you know, this. some of this is so inappropriate. You know, I think you often don't look at things and you just because they're there, you know, in plain sight. And then we looked and it sort of described her as being sil described Lolita as being sort of silky skinned and talked about his misadventures. And it was just very, very icky. So... We actually, well, I mean, I actually did rewrite the copy on that one, um, slightly drawing off some other versions that that existed already and, and slightly my own version. So I used the description of him as a poet and a pervert, which I think is, you know, confronts the issue head on, I suppose, which yeah. is sort of what you have to do because he's a monster, but he's also, a, he's a verbose monster, you know, and I think... Um, you can't shy away from this and you can't, I think euphemism is the worst thing you can do with a book like this. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, and also talking about the, the language as well, that, you know, which is such a huge part of the book. Yeah. If that so your work also covers um, providing blurbs for say uh, penguin classics for 
yes. books that have been published many, many times over the years. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, so you're often, I mean, you know, talk about writing 5,000 blurbs, but some of those may be blurbs for the same book <laughs> that, right. that I'm, I'm constantly, you know, revisiting. And, and we're always looking at ways to make these books appeal to a new audience, um, which is always a challenge, I think, because you want to avoid anything that, that takes read, a reader back to the classroom. You know, you just don't want a whiff of school about your copy at all. I think it's just so off-putting. But at the same time, you don't want to talk down to a reader. I think you just want your language to be clear and compelling um, and try and bring out those universal things that will appeal to readers of all ages. Um, but I, yeah, it's it's a fun challenge. And I think looking back at some classics blurbs from years gone by, they were, you know, they're just, they're very highfalutin. They're very <laughs> extravagant. The language they use is just completely different from how we would describe them today. You know, they would not get past a marketing department today. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you need to, it's it's hard. Yes, you need to try and make them distinctive, but at the same time, appeal to as many people as possible and never assume anything. I never assume that they will have read it, that they will know anything about it or its characters. So, mm -hmm. so you're a wordsmith. Do you ever get it right first time? Um, I wish. <laughs> that, that would be lovely. <laughs> um, but um, no, it would be my answer, I think. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think there's no such thing as a perfect blurb just you know that i mean people might say there's such a thing as a perfect book but i don't there's definitely no such thing as a perfect piece of copy um because i think everyone interprets a story in their own way like being one of my favorite blurbs is on um an old uh, edition of margaret atwood's the handmaid's tale that i've got which i absolutely love and i know a friend of mine hates that blurb um because uh, she thinks it concentrates too much on the love story. So I think everyone is going to see a book differently. Everyone is going to pick out a different element of it. So I actually did an experiment in my book where I got six copywriter friends to each write a blurb for the book. And they've gone in the back as an appendix just because I thought it was interesting that they were so radically different from each other, even though they'd all been given the same brief. And for me, each one reflected the character of the person I knew somehow, which I thought was interesting. So I thought, oh, maybe, you know, we're, we're not being as objective as we think. Um, so there's definitely no perfect blurb, but I think it's a process and it's a process I love, you know, just getting a text, having a read, making some notes, digesting it, um, thinking about it. And then in a way, for trying to forget that I've ever read it and imagine myself in the shoes of someone who hasn't read it and doesn't know anything about it. So um, it's, I just, I find it an endlessly fascinating process, actually trying to interpret a book for the world. So there must be an approval process. Um, is it ever, do you ever have problems with the, getting the author to approve the, the blurb copy? Yes, definitely. Um, I suppose the advantage of writing for lots of classics is that the authors tend to be dead, which is, is handy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there are estates to deal with, but they generally, um, you know, aren't as emotionally involved as an author might be. But with living authors, definitely. Um, I've 
a couple of very famous male authors have been really horrible, but I shan't name them. <laughs> and, um, and and some have been lovely and, and some don't quite get what the blurb is for, I think, because, you know, off, you know, as, as the author of a work, you're very close to it. And so yeah. um, one author wrote to me saying, oh, you know, this blurb is now that he'd added about 150, 200 words to my copy and saying, this is like, this blurb is so comprehensive now that nobody's going to have to read the book. <laughs> I sort of thought, well, um, it's not quite the aim of what we're doing here. <laughs> um, but uh, I think one of the my favourite um, correspondences I've ever had was a letter from John Updike, a handwritten letter um, where he, well, he sort of approves a blurb that I'd written for an, a new edition of his novel, Couples, um, and it's just so charming. And he he includes a, a photocopy of his original blurb that he wrote for the hardback, which is a much longer one. He says, you know, I just include this as as just an example of of, of my copy, but you know. Um, I'm sure your version's lovely. And at the end, he just says, oh, my, have it have it your way, um, which I just thought was wonderful. So, um, you know, he was he was showing me how it was done. But but in the end, he did approve it. So generally, my encounters have been pretty good. But I know of others who've not been so lucky. Um, and there was the fairly famous example of a couple of years ago of, of Jeanette Winterson, who was so unhappy with the blurbs that Vintage had put on some new editions of her works that she actually burned the books in her garden and put it on social media. So I think wow. that's probably the most extreme reaction <laughs> that I've encountered. <laughs> but Indeed. luckily I didn't write them, so it was fine. <laughs> so in your book, you talk about many examples of good and bad blurbs. And there's one example that you dwell on and that is uh, the blurb, I think you call it legendary, I'm not sure, uh, for Lace by Shirley Conran. So not everyone is going to remember Lace or be familiar with Lace. And it is a, how would you describe it? It's a... Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's 1982, I think. The, the is it 1982? Okay. And um, it's, it's, yes, it's sort of the start of that, the really that that genre of sometimes it was known as the bonk buster sometimes it was yeah. known as the sex and shopping novel you know that huge romantic sagas full of rude bits um which teenage girls at the time were completely obsessed with um and they were often about women being independent you know they you know they kind of rode the crest of the feminist revolution but then yeah. you know they were also Hit, we were hitting the 80s consumer revolution as well so it was kind of a wonderful hybrid of those <laughs> those two periods yeah. i suppose super easy to read Very. powerful women drama sex yeah. all packed into a like a very fast moving plot absolutely yeah great description so let's i'm just going to read the blurb because it'll give people a clue what we're talking about here okay here we go which one of you bitches is my mother? The question sears through the thoughts of the four women summoned so mysteriously to a glamorous New York hotel apartment, unlocking the past and a secret, a secret that has enmeshed their lives and dogged their success, that lies at the heart of this scorching sensational novel. The story of four women, Judy, Kate, Pagan and Maxine, who took life as they found it and dared to make it a success against an international backdrop of the rich, the famous and the depraved. These women, bound together by ties stronger than love itself, created legends. 
wonderful. I felt like I almost knew that off by heart as you were reading it. It's packed <laughs> with so many powerful words. Um, enmeshed, dogged, depraved. Depraved is a great one. And I even think the characters' names, like there was a character called Pagan, which I always found completely, you know, before I'd read it, I was so intrigued by that idea that there was somebody called Pagan in there. And um, and this idea of women daring to make life a success, I just, you know, as an impressionable teenage girl, I found it completely thrilling, this sort of alien, exotic and glamorous world. Um, and there was also a wonderful shout line on the front, I remember, which is the best-selling novel that teaches men about women and women about themselves which I just thought was the most profound thing I'd ever read at the time. Um, and obviously they were, you know, recovering all their bases as well, market-wise with that line. Um, and I think I I love, you know, obviously you could just say, oh, that's a load of cheesy nonsense. But I love that blurb because I remember reading it and the fact that it made me think about the words on books and the impression that they have on us. And so I was getting hooked in, but I, it also created an awareness I think of of what words can do to us um and I think the reason now I I love it because obviously that opening line it uses Shirley Conran's own words and sometimes that's great sometimes the author just does it better um and I think that line which one of you bitches is my mother works for two reasons firstly because it's obviously it's a classic hook or you know what a journalist might call a grabber something like that so it's clearly happened mid-conversation um you're plunged into a moment it asks a question there's an immediate mystery who are the bitches who's saying this what's going on um but also i think the second reason is that it works because of um voice which is so important with you know, trying to to draw a reader into the world of a novel. Um, it's it's brash, it's rude, um, it, it's funny. You know, and it it clearly says that that you're going to have a good time. It's got a real energy about it. So I think um, that's why it works. And then, as you say, this blurb is just full of those brilliant words. Um, it's really punchy. It tells a story. And it leaves you wanting more. Well, it left me wanting more anyway. Yeah, millions of people wanting more. Okay, you've mentioned uh, journalism a, a few times. Do you take inspiration from other professions? Advertising, maybe? Mm, absolutely. I would say all the time. I, I don't know if you find the same, but I've just, I'm just slightly obsessed with copy everywhere, you know, whether it's a description of a film on Netflix or a poster or anything I see, you know, obviously copy on books. Um, I just find it completely fascinating. And and definitely in terms of advertising, that's something I think about a lot and something I thought about a lot when I was writing my book as well. Um, You know, the, the words of these very wise what you would call fathers of advertising so there's David Ogilvy's idea that you know people don't know what they think they don't act the way they think they do you know this idea of us as emotional kind of irrational beings um whose whose brains respond to very simple triggers I think is really interesting and um and I was thinking only yesterday about um the copywriter David Abbott's uh line that sometimes the best copy is no copy I don't know if you've seen there's been an insane amount of marketing around the new Greta 
Go, a big Barbie film coming out in July. Yeah. And um, I just saw a poster for it yesterday, which is purely just the Barbie pink. It's just a pink poster. And then there's a little date in the bottom right hand corner. And I thought, yes, sometimes the best copy is no copy because it just created that sense of excitement and it didn't need any words to do so. So, um, uh, yes, I think about advertising a lot. And I think probably the other thing I think about quite a lot as well is films. So, um, film taglines is something I talk about yes. in the book as well. The idea of these these lines that sort of somehow capture opposites. So like, you know, they're they're full of tension. So there are quite a lot of movie posters I quote in the book. Um, there's uh, I Am Legend, So the Last Man on Earth is Not Alone. There's things like Finding Nemo. You know, there are 3.7 trillion fish in the sea. They've got to find one. So if you go from one idea to its absolute opposite um another one i love is the tagline for the film alien so in space no one can hear you scream because yeah brilliant line it, it's so it's it's show don't tell isn't it it's like yeah they don't need to say this is a science fiction horror film because it's it's all there in that line so so yes I th- it's it's endless source of inspiration and fascination all right you also talk about other things um apart from just blurbs you consider things like um Best first lines in literature, uh, which many people can probably talk about. Uh, do you have some examples of what are your favourites? Uh, I do, actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of almost ended up dedicating the entire chapter to Stephen King because um, I think he is so good at doing those hooks, which I've already talked about. You know, I think a first line can do many different things. It can kind of be immersive, so it can put you in... A moment it can be um emotional so i think i quote uh the first line of daphne du Maurier's rebecca last night i dreamt i went to mandalay again yeah. you know it creates that you, you can hear that fire crackling you know it's it's immediately mysterious and and nostalgic and and haunting um and then with stephen king i think it's you know it's the surprise it's the element of well what's going on i don't understand there's something a twist immediately yeah exactly the twist is there isn't it it's so true so we've got um needful things you've been here before or where um it starts the terror which would not end for another 28 years well what's the terror and then carrie we've got nobody was really surprised when it happened not really not at the subconscious level where savage things grow so again, the it. So he's immediately setting up his mystery in his very first line. Um, and as King says as well, it's also about the voice, which I've already mentioned. You know, it's it's you you come to a writer for their voice as well as their plots. So I think they, yeah. they establish that really well. And there's something that made me think you know, about the first line of a piece of copy as well, that it can hopefully should try and do those things too. Um, and all the, the copy that we see on books, so I talk about book titles as well and subtitles and the copy you see on the front, all those things that work together to, to try and encourage us into the world of the book. Yeah, I find uh, nonfiction that has a, a colon and then a very long subtitle quite frustrating. A, a good example is. Um, well, I can't remember what comes after the colon, but Heat by Bill Buford, which has about 20 words after the colon describing something to do with the restaurant industry. 
You don't need it because heat describes what he goes through in those kitchens. It's so true, isn't it? I I think there does seem to be a bit of a fashion recently for these incredibly long subtitles. Um, I think partly it's to do with online search. That seems to be the consensus that it's like stuffing it with these words, these trigger words for people that might get picked up on in search, you know. Um, But also I think it's perhaps... A, a little bit of fear like you know is the title enough um and as someone said you know a book subtitle is ultimately like your you know your middle name or something it doesn't really get used it's it's not how you remember the book and it's not how you describe the book but i think sometimes we just want to throw everything at a book and see what sticks <laughs> <laughs> indeed indeed okay louise uh, my final question uh what book or books are you currently reading Oh, um, I've got sort of fun books and workbooks. Although workbooks Uh, can sometimes be fun as well, which is uh, great. Yeah, let's let's hear about everything. More the merrier. Yeah. um, So uh, my fun book, although I don't know if I would actually describe it as fun. It's probably not fun at all. Um, But the book I'm reading for pleasure at the moment is Lapvona by Otessa Moshfe, who wrote Eileen and My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Um, I think it's an incredibly weird story about a medieval village um, where horrific things seem to happen to people all the time. Um, But I'm really enjoying it. And I think there's something about her deadpan style of writing that I love. And I was thinking, you know, I'm often, I like female writers with with a dark side. So, you know, Shirley Jackson, Patricia Highsmith, that stealthy kind of deceptively clean writing that that just somehow takes you somewhere very sinister indeed so um i am enjoying that in a in a very odd way and then um for work i'm reading michael lewis's new book which i'm really loving um which is i think he's the author of the big short and lies Mm -hmm. poker so he often writes about the world of finance which is something that I'm not interested in at all. In fact, would run away from, you know, at a million miles an hour. But his latest book uh, about the cryptocurrency um, tycoon who has, you know, who fell from grace, um, it's a a true story, is... um, is completely fascinating. And I was thinking about that, you know, about how he, a writer like Lewis, has this ability to take anything at all and turn it into a completely gripping human story um indeed so i felt that that tied in quite nicely with all the things i've been thinking about you know trying to to get a story and fillet it in a way that that sort of connects with people emotionally so um yeah so so luckily that that's a workbook but it's also a very fun book as well moneyball by michael lewis i don't really follow baseball um, but that book is so interesting and the film does a pretty good job of adapting it. It's you great. really get yeah, behind the people. Too. You know, it's, it's, it's... Yeah, it's, it is funny. Yeah, he, he's a great writer. Yeah, I've read a few of his books. Um, shall, I, shall I share what I'm reading? If... Please, yes. Uh, okay. I'm reading uh, two books. Um, I, I'm reading a book called Overdue. And I can't remember the name of the author, but it's nonfiction account of uh, a librarian who works seven years at a um, public library in Washington, D.C. called um, Northwest One. And it was in a fairly uh, downbeaten part of Washington, D.C. 
And it's quite interesting to hear this experience of a librarian where basically she's a social worker dealing with homeless people, people with mental health crises, uh, violence, all sorts. She's hardly touched on books. (laughs) She's a children's librarian. And it's quite eye-opening of what librarians go through in the modern era. And she hasn't even touched about book banning, which is the the big theme over here at the moment. But anyway, I'm reading that. And then I'm reading um, The Wager by David Gran, which is a bestseller at the top of the charts over here. And it's a nonfiction account of a shipwreck, which is always entertaining um, from about 250 years ago. (laughs) A good shipwreck and survival book is, yeah, which is a... He's, he's really another example sort of of, of Michael Lewis but where it's uh, narrative nonfiction and he's painting a great picture of these people surviving or not surviving. But yeah, that's what I'm reading at the moment. All right. Okay, Louise, that's all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to thank Louise Wilder for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Louise is a copywriter at Penguin Books and the author of Blurb Your Enthusiasm an A to Z of literary persuasion. Thank you for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and I'll see you again soon.